I pray that's true of my soul, that my soul is satisfied in him alone. It's so easy to get distracted. It's so easy to uh, think about so many other things that uh, place higher priority than what we should, isn't it? Isn't it? Oh, man, good singing today. Good songs. Let's go to uh, Acts chapter 4, please. We're continuing on our series here. We only have, uh, I think, what, one week or so left, and then we start our Advent series, um, which I'm looking forward to that. been working on that this last week, and uh, looking forward to, to uh, going over that with you. The theme, can I give you the theme? Can I give you the theme of Advent this year? Because, yeah, we always do a different theme. Like last year was the women of Christmas, and we've done the songs of Christmas. We've done a whole bunch of other things. This year's theme, unmasking Christmas. <laughs> you like that? You like that? I spent a long time thinking that up. You better like that, okay? <laughs> All right. I, I look forward to kind of showing how that the Christmas season often gets masked by all the other things. And then when we go back to Luke, we're going to see the beauty of Christmas unmasked again, okay? Oh, wait a minute. You guys, oh, that, oh, no, that's not what I was talking about. <laughs> all right, Acts 4. I'm going to read the text, and uh, uh, we'll pray, and then we'll, we'll dive in. We're, we're in Acts 4.32. Remember, last week we looked at Acts 4, uh, 1 through 31, and then we went to 5. Uh, uh, 12 through the end of the chapter, and we skip this middle section here because we want to come back today and and deal with it uh, together here. So um, they have just, just by way of reminder, they've just been uh, in prison, uh, a couple of the apostles. They get released after spending the night in jail because this is all stemming from healing that man. Remember that man that had been a lame for 40 years, his whole life, and uh, excuse me, the apostles heal him. And so that, then they're taken into prison and all this stuff. So that's what's stemming from this. After they get released, they go right immediately, they get with other believers, and they, they really have a worship service. And they pray, and they pray for boldness. And we see this in chapter 4, verses 23 through 31. So that's the background of where we're picking up the narrative, okay? So verse 32 of 4. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul And no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them. For as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. Thus, Joseph who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. Before I continue on, let me just make a quick note here about this. Um, When you see in the scriptures, uh, son of, okay, uh, that's just a way to designate. It was, a, it was a way in that culture to designate what that person was known for. It's not saying that their father was known for that. It was saying that this is who, what they were known for. Um, Luke is introducing a character that is going to come up later on in this book. We're going to see Barnabas again a couple of times, and we're going to see him on missions trips. We're going to see him with some family members. And so this is a way for Luke to introduce this pivotal character 
in the narrative. Remember, he's writing to Theophilus to give him certainty, and he's introducing people along the way. And here we get, uh, we get Barnabas, is what he's later known of. His, his name is actually Joseph, but he's later known as Barnabas. Um, and the thing is, he, he's known as a Levite. And I think one of the reasons why Luke wanted to include that is because we've just had a series, and we're right before this and then right after this, where people, the Levitical priest, were opposing the gospel. They were opposing the work of the apostles. And so I think what Luke is doing here, one of the reasons he throws in there, he's a Levite, to say, look, you know, but God had people in every place. Okay, so, so don't, don't just categorize everyone this way. You, you, you have to take people on an individual basis. And that's a, that's a piece that's often kind of missed. And so I just wanted to point that out, um, that this is uh, something that was important about him. So he sold this money. This is the example that uh, Luke is giving to Theophilus to say, this is the type of generosity that was there. Let's pick it up back in chapter 5, verse 1. But now we have a contrast. So we have Barnabas. Now there's a contrast. But a man named Ananias and his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property, and with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to men, but to God. Notice here the deity of the Holy Spirit. Okay, he's called, he said, you lied to the Holy Spirit. And then he says, you've lied to God here. He ties that together. Don't miss that. But, excuse me, verse five, when Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last. And great fear came upon all who heard it. The young men rose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. After an interval of about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter said to her, tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, yes, for so much. But Peter said to her, how is it that you have agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who buried your husband are at the door and they will carry you out. And immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. When the young men came in, they found her dead, and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard these things. Luke is too careful of a historian to, to repeat things unnecessarily. In fact, if you read the, the, the description of the church in verse 32 and following there, it sounds very similar to how he described it at the end of chapter 2. And then twice in this text, he says, great fear came upon those who heard it. Well, if I was sitting there, I would be afraid too, right? There's the point, and that's what we're going to unpack today. So what I hope to do is I hope to just uh, take a few minutes and structure this uh, around two main points, and hopefully we have a helpful discussion on this text today. But I'm going to pause and ask God's blessing, and uh, then we'll, we'll dive in. Father... Um, I'm asking my brothers and sisters to pray with me here that uh, we pray for your spirit to guide our thinking and for my communication. I, uh, this text has been a, a fascinating one to study, and, um, and honestly, there's some things about it that I'm still uncertain of, if I'm going to be totally transparent. But um, in the main, it is, it is a very helpful text. It's very sobering, though, God. 
It's very sobering. And so I pray that we would give it the attention that it deserves, and I pray that your spirit would guide us, and I pray that you would receive all glory and honor because you deserve it, God, and we love you. In Christ's name we do pray. Amen. So mountaintops and valleys. Um, I don't know if you've ever watched a sports game that goes back and forth and back and forth. In 2014, there was a basketball game in the NBA between the LA Clippers and the Portland Trailblazers, and the lead changed a record setting 40 times during the game. Back and forth, back and forth. If you look at the graph of the, the score throughout the game, it, it, just, it just keeps going back and forth, back and forth, the two lines. Uh, switching to football in 2013, there was a snow game. There was a game that played in the NFL that was just, it, you know, tons of snow was falling. Um, I believe it was in Minnesota. It was between the Baltimore Ravens and the Minnesota Vikings. And in the last two minutes, last two minutes and nine seconds, there was 35 points scored, five lead changes, and a kickoff return for a touchdown that won the game in the last two minutes. Talk about back and forth. Talk about, you know, the offense is, you know, they score and they feel great mountaintop, and then they watch their defense just give up a touchdown right away. It just reminds you of Michigan football, okay? All right, for those of you who caught the game last night, okay? There was what I'm describing here, lead changes. That didn't happen last night, okay? It was, it was a beat down, right? Right, Roger? Okay, all right. Roger texted me. You know, some of you in this church, the only time you text me is when Wisconsin beats Michigan. I'm just going to put that out there, okay? All right. So, but the point is, is that that didn't happen last night. But in sports, there is this, this tension that happens, right, of mountaintops and valleys. You know, life is like that. Life is full of mountaintops and valleys. It has moments of both of those things. And what Luke is doing here is he's given a very honest report of the early church, and it gives us an example to follow without falling into unrealistic idealism. And it also warns us against unchecked sin. So that's what's happening here is he's saying, listen, you know, when we're reading about 3,000 people saved, and we're reading about the boldness of Peter, and we're reading about all these things, it's easy for us to kind of get this idealistic, uh, uh, unrealistic idealism about the early church and like, well, man, this was great and everything. Well, then he's like, just, just, just hang on, just hang on. Let me tell you about this story here. And I appreciate the, the, the honesty of Luke to, to share that about the early church because we can learn from that and be warned from it. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to frame this around two points today, uh, mountaintops and valleys. And first of all, we're going to talk about the mountaintop of grace, the mountaintop of grace. And so we're going to see this through, uh, we're going to see it illustrated in three ways through this this morning here. And first of all, we see this idea of grace-enabled unity here. Did you notice that in verse 32, Luke starts out this section here by saying they were of one heart and one soul. This is, this is the idea of that they were, they were agreed, they were together. Now, this is not the idea of carbon copies. It wasn't like everyone was a, a cookie cutter image. They had their differences, but they were of the same goal. They were the same purpose. They were of the same mind. Uh, they had the same love. They had the same uh, will to follow follow Christ and to speak of his resurrection that we're going to see later on here in a second here. And so, so it's this idea of everyone pulling the same way and with the same goal, right? 
when I was a kid, you know, our church, we have a children's program here, typically we do, uh, that meets on Wednesday nights. It's called AWANA, okay? And it comes from a Bible verse, it's an acronym, uh, which stands for Approved Workmen Are Not Ashamed. It comes from the book of 2 Timothy, and so, uh, or 1 Timothy, oh boy. I'm going to lose my one award for that. But uh, anyway, uh, there was always these games we played, right? And one of the games that we played um, was called the four-way tug. And so when I was a kid, they used to circle rope. I don't know if they still do it or not. I, I, I don't know. But uh, it, it, this was where we would pair up in teams of two, right? And so there would be four teams uh, of two each, and then you know, on, the, on the whistle, we all had to start with one foot in the middle, and then we'd go back and we'd start pulling, and, and then the goal is to pull back far enough where there's a beanbag on the ground where you can reach and grab the beanbag, and then your team wins. And there was different strategies about this. I remember coaching, because this was, we'd go and compete against other churches with a whole bunch of different games, and this was one of those. And um, uh, I was in this, right? And so I was in this thing. And so I remember uh, the coach tells us to do the rowing motion, you know, to try to do this. But then there was this other thing is that he, one time he said, try to pull towards the direction of another team to throw them off balance and then come back, right? So all these different strategies. The point is this. It really didn't matter. At the end of the day, we all just ended up with a bunch of rope-burned hands because we didn't wear gloves back then. And then we just hung on for dear life, hoping that someone would slip and fall, and then we'd get the beanbag. That's really how we won the game at the end of the day. But it was so difficult because everyone was going their own direction, right? Everyone was pulling their own way, and there was not a whole lot of motion going on. There wasn't a whole lot of movement going on. It was just back and forth, back and forth, until someone finally made a big mistake, and then it was won. You know, sometimes I think that that's like how we are in the church. Is like everyone's just kind of doing their own thing or, or living their own way or whatever. That's what Luke here, he's saying, this is not what was happening here. Is that They were all pulling the same direction. They all had the same goal. They had the same mind. And this was something that they were working together on. And we see this display here. It was, must have been just a wonderful thing to see. And so... I think what we can take from that is we can say that we, we know what the goal here is. We know that the goal of our church is to build one another up and to share the good news of Jesus Christ, right? We're talking about the two commands. We're talking about, first of all, the greatest commandment, love God with all your heart, soul, and mind, love your neighbors yourself. We know that. We also know the great commission. It says, go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. We know that, okay? And so we, are, we should be agreed on that, and that should be what we're living out each day. That's the way we should be pulling together with the same goal and purpose. Now, you have a different context to do that in than I do, and you have different uh, people to do that with than I do, but it should be the same thing. As we are together as a church, and I'm not talking about physically necessarily together, but just together as a church, that God has assembled this church together, these are the things that should be guiding us. This is what we should be pulling of the same mind, of the same heart, of same will, and same purpose. The problem comes is sometimes people wait to be told or wait to be given an opportunity to do these things rather than to seek those things out themselves. And so my suggestion is, is that don't always wait for a program or an event to do the greatest commandment of love your neighbor, love God with all your heart, soul, mind, love your neighbors yourself. That you know who is part of this church, most of you do. Encourage one another. You know people who need to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. Tell them about it. Don't wait for someone to tell you to do that. You see, that's the unity of mind here is that they didn't have to have, you know, the apostles with special programs and instructions to do these things. They did it because they were living out their purpose. 
And so whether you're here or whether you're watching at home, let me just encourage you to, to live out the purpose in this unified way like this early church did, but don't wait. Don't wait for someone to say, hey, you have to do this. There's people that just need encouragement and love. You can do that. You can do that. A phone call, a text, a card, all those things are very easy to do, and let me just encourage you to do that. I need to move on. Not only was there uh, grace-enabled unity, but we see grace-enabled generosity here. And, and this was said of the whole church here. The apostles were leading this, of course, but it was the people who were bringing these things to the apostles, and they were, I mean, you just saw that there was not a needy person among them, verse 34. Uh, that's just an amazing statement there, that of all these people, there wasn't a needy person because they were sharing now, I'm not going to take time to do this, and, and a lot of commentators, I read a lot of commentaries on this, and they often, and particularly when they were written, it's funny, if they were written during the Cold War, they talked a lot about communism and Marxism, okay? And they said, this is not what this text is teaching, and they're right, it doesn't teach this, okay? And there's big differences, I'm not going to go through all the outlines of that, but the point is this, is that there were generous people, generous, generous people in this church, and when and the key is when you're transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ, you're going to be generous because you see the generosity that God has shown toward you and you can't help but, but be generous towards other people. Now, I don't know, but uh, you know, Jesus earlier in, uh, at the end of his, his ministry, so just not too much longer before this, you remember there was a scene where he's with the, the, the disciples and they're outside the temple. And you remember he said that this will be, torn down, right? And he was talking about his body and the things like that, but he does talk about in that text about the overthrow of Jerusalem that's going to happen, okay? Now, I, I don't know this for sure, but I wonder if that was helpful towards these apostles becoming and these people becoming much more generous. If they knew that they thought that their city was going to be overthrown and they were going to lose their houses and stuff anyway, then probably it made more sense for them just to say, well, we might as well use it to help other people now. And I don't know if that's true or not, but I do know this, that when we have that mentality of that all the things that we own and we have are temporary and we're going to lose them in the end anyway, it sure makes it a whole lot easier to be generous with what we have. And that is the truth. I, mean, I don't know that a city is going to be overthrown. That's not my point. But I do know this, is that at the end of our lives, we don't take anything with us. And... It's a whole lot easier to be generous and put the things that we have to use for good purposes now, knowing that we're, it's not going to last anyway. And so the, these are some of the things I believe that were going on in their, in their hearts and in their minds. And so we get the example of Barnabas here. And, and again, this is just one of those guys that, that Luke pulls out and he says, I just want to introduce this guy to you. I want you to see how generous this person was to illustrate the point here. And uh, he, he sold some land and he laid it at the apostles' feet there. Um, just means he said, hey, you guys distribute it as you see. You know, what did their generosity look like? Let me just give you a few characteristics of it. So I'm not going to spend a lot of time going through each one of these, but uh, I just want to make a, a quick uh, mention of them just so you can kind of see what their generosity looked like from this text. It was selfless. I mean, they were thinking of other people. They were, they were looking at other people. It says that in verse 32, no one said any of the things that belonged to him was his own. They had everything in common. They, were, they weren't just thinking about how their possessions could serve themselves and their families. They were thinking about how it could serve other people and how it could be used for to be a blessing and encouragement to other people. It was sacrificial. I mean, they, they, they gave the proceeds. They sold things that they owned so that, that 
other people could be helped and needy people. It was voluntary. Nowhere in the text, and this is the dip, one of the differences that most of those commentators that were really quick to point out, this isn't Marxism or communism. They're saying, well, this is voluntary. Okay, that's not voluntary. You see, this was completely voluntary. There's nowhere in the text where it says that the apostles compelled the people to do this. Uh, this was something that, they, that, that people just did as the Spirit led them to do because they saw needs and they saw people that could benefit and they wanted to help. And there was this generosity and generous spirit that was coming out. It was voluntary. It was submissive. Now, what I mean by submissive is that, that they, notice what they did is they laid it at the apostles' feet. And they, 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 they didn't just take the, the, gen, the, the gift and then they say, well, we're going to use it only for my pet project or something. They said, no, we're just going to give it to the church leaders, the early church leaders, and they're going to know more of the needs that are out there, and they're going to distribute it as needed. And later on in chapter 6, we're going to see another distribution that's going to happen with the widows and how the people needed to, to care for one another here. But here, this is where they said, we're not going to hold on to this. We're not going to you know, claim this as our own. Once, once we sold the money, we're just going to give it to the leadership and say, you, you guys do with it as you see what's best. Hey, there's a submissive spirit to that that says, you know what? I'm not even going to try to claim ownership on it. Now, does that mean designated giving is wrong? No, that's not what that means. But that's one of the reasons why we say we structure our budget of the church. You just give it to the general fund. And then, and then as the needs are coming up, then that's what it's being used for. So there's a submissiveness to that. And then the last point there is as needed there. And that's, you know, as needs came up, then, you saw this in the end of verse 35, as needs came up, they met those needs. And if you, if you dig into the original language a little bit of how that this is written, the way that Luke and the words that Luke uses here, there's, there's a really good indication here that this was ad hoc, that this wasn't just everyone selling everything at once, that this was uh, someone heard about a need, and so they sold something, and they gave the money to the apostles and said, hey, meet the needs that we're hearing about here. Then maybe a week or two went by, same thing happened. And so this wasn't just mass sell-off. And that the, the way it's also written, it says that there was an ending point too to this. And so but there's just this tremendous, tremendous generosity that this church in Jerusalem was showing here. They were just showing that, that, that they, they were taking their possessions, they were using them for, for kingdom work here. It, it, think about this distinction here. While the early church had personal possessions, they didn't see them as private possessions. Okay? So they, they own stuff. There's, this is not a prohibition about, against owning things, of personal ownership. It's saying that we own things, but not only always for our own private good and private use. And so the house that you have, and so the cars that you have, and, and the money that we have, and, and everything, our time. It's not just money. It's time as well. Uh, I was so blessed to see a number of people help someone move yesterday. And so it was just giving of time to do that. And so this is that generous spirit that we're, that we're talking about that just needs to be characteristic of our church, not because for a name for ourselves, but because that's why God, that's how God intends us to live is through generous giving here. So they had personal possessions. Yes, personal ownership. Sure, absolutely. But they didn't see it as private. It was something to be used for other people. So your possessions, what you have, your materials, what is it? How do you view them? Is it personal property or is it private property? And no one's welcome to it. Let me just encourage us to always foster this generous spirit. Um, God blesses that and, and it's a way for us to show the love of Christ 
not just to the people that we're helping, but really to the entire world. Before I move on, there's a side note here that I just want to point out, just so I can piece this together in history for you, okay? Right now, the Church of Jerusalem is being super generous. Right now, they are, they, th- this is like a test case of generosity. In chapter 11, we're going to find out that there's a collection being made. There was a famine that comes into the land. And Paul, the Apostle Paul later on, one of the things, and if you read through other books, letters that he's written, he'll talk about a collection that he's taking up. And what he's doing is he's gathering funds to help a struggling church that this got hit hard in a famine and that they needed help desperately. And guess what church that was? The church of Jerusalem. So here they're generous. Here they're giving to us because in times of plenty, we give and we give and we give. And then there's going to be times where we're blessed with times of want or times of need. And that's when then other people can come and help us out. And so if you're in a position of an abundance, then generously and joyfully give. But if you're in a position where there's lacking right now, graciously and gratefully accept and receive the blessings that God sends your way by other believers. You see, this is how God's designed it. He's designed for us, and this is what Paul says in Philippians chapter four. He says, I've learned how to be content in all things, whether in blessing or in times of want, I've learned to be content, and he knows that my God will supply his needs. And this is the way he's doing it. So this generous spirit here. So we see this mountaintop, right? This mountaintop of grace. Grace is enabling these things. Grace is enabling a generous spirit. Grace is enabling unity. But then grace also enables a bold witness here. Did you see that it says here that they were, in verse 33, they were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord and great grace was upon them. These people were continuing to boldly preach and teach about the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Why was that so important? Because that's the hope of eternal life. Later on, Paul's going to write in 1 Corinthians, he says, if Christ is not risen, we are of all people most miserable. See, that is the hope of eternal life, and this is why they were boldly proclaiming. This is an answer to the text that we looked at last week of when they had that worship service and they had that prayer meeting. They said, listen, we're being threatened here, God. Please give us boldness. Luke tells that Theophilus, he says, you can have certainty. Remember, that's the point. You can have certainty. These people, God is answering their request. He's being gracious to them. Look at their generous spirit. Look at their unity and look at their bold witness. They are talking about Jesus Christ because it's the most important thing to their lives. There's nothing else. Their soul is satisfied in him alone like we just sang, right? So this is this grace that's on display here. And I think we can summarize before we move on to the the second point, we can summarize this is that their words and their actions matched. What they said they believed was exactly how they lived. And that is so important because there's so many times where we we say we believe certain things. We say we believe that Jesus is the most important. We say we believe that we're trusting in him alone, but yet then we, are, we, we so need safety. We so need security. And I'm not against safety and security, but that can't be our hope, right? And so their words and their actions, and that this was a beautiful mountaintop of grace that Luke is saying to Theophilus, I want you to see this. I want you to see this. But 
there's also valleys. This is the valley of sin that we're going to look at here, starting in chapter 5 in verse 1, the valley of sin. This is the story of Ananias and Sapphira. This is one of those stories that um, when Theophilus was first reading this, he must have thought, what? This what? Oh, wow. This is one of those moments that would have been very, very difficult. Let me break this down for you. How, how did this play out? First of all, there was sinful jealousy there. Uh, I pointed out as I was reading through the text, the first verse of chapter 5, uh, which, again, uh, the chapter and verse divisions came much later. In the original, when these were first written, it was just one long scroll. And so these chapter divisions or verse divisions are somewhat arbitrary. They were put in there just for ease of, you know, so that we could get to the same spot together. I'm grateful for them. Um, it'd be difficult if we all had scrolls. I'm like, okay, keep going down, keep going down. It's somewhere there, you know what I'm saying? Uh, so these chapter and verse divisions are super helpful for us getting on the same page in the same spot. Uh, but they are arbitrary in some ways, and this is just a continuing thought of the end of chapter 4. He says, but there's a man of Ananias, a man named Ananias. There's, there's an obvious comparison here. And this comparison leads to that the logical conclusion shared by most theologians on this is that Ananias and Sapphira wanted the same prestige and honor shown to Barnabas. No doubt they were very grateful. The people of the church was very grateful for this gift that Barnabas gave, and it was highlighted by Luke, and so it probably was a substantial gift. And then Ananias and Sapphira said, we want in on that. We want that notoriety. We want that glory as well. And so out of jealousy for that, they came up with a plan, and um, they, they, they wanted both to uh, have the notoriety of, of being a, a, a disciple or a, a generous person, but yet they didn't want to give up their autonomy and what they owned and the benefits of that. And so you see this jealousy here, which leads to a sinful selfishness here. When you read through this, there's, there's clues here that will really help kind of uh, help us understand this. When it says this phrase in verse 2, and then also later on, uh, I believe it's in uh, verse 3, uh, this idea of kept back here, um, this is the, it's a very rare word. In fact, it's only, it's only used one other time in the New Testament. Um, it's the same word that the Septuagint, I'll explain that in a minute, um, uses for the sin of Achan in Joshua 7. The Septuagint is a Greek translation of the Hebrew Scriptures, okay? So the Old Testament was originally written in Hebrew, most of it, some of it in Aramaic as well, but the majority of it was written in Hebrew. The, the, that Bible that these people would have been reading, those Old Testament Scriptures, what we call Old Testament Scriptures, it's referred to as the Law and the Prophets and things like that, books of history, um, that they, would have been, they wouldn't have been reading in this place out of the Hebrew. They would have been reading out of the Septuagint, which is a translation that the Greeks made. And so they tr- tr- went from Hebrew into Greek, okay? And so uh, earlier in Jesus' ministry, when he is in the temple and he's teaching, and he calls for the scroll of Isaiah, and he reads it and puts it down, he actually quotes the Septuagint version of that, not the Hebrew version of it. Um, and so this is what, what was going on. Now, the reason why I bring that up is the word that they're using for Achan's sin in Joshua 7 is the same word here. Let me remind you about Achan. Achan, this was during the conquest. This was, they're going and, and 
God had given them the uh, uh, battles, and, but he says, do not take any of the spoils of the city. Do not take anything. That is to be devoted, okay? That's, that's to be devoted not to you. You are not to take it. It is not yours. The story goes that a man by the name of Achan stole a couple pieces, some gold, some robes, things like that, and he hides it. He's found out. He's judged severely because he had taken what belonged to God is basically what had happened here. That same word Luke uses for this right here. What we can infer from that is that, that there was already an agreement. There was an agreement that Ananias and Sapphira made with the church. And they said, hey, we're going to sell the land for $10,000 and you're going to get it all. Okay? And they're like, wow, thank you. Thank you so much. In actuality, they had already made a plan to sell it for $15,000. And so they kept the 5000 and gave the 10000 Remember, the point is not here. They were not judged because they kept money back. Peter makes it very clear and says, after you sold it, wasn't it at your disposal? I mean, you could have done what you wanted to do with it. But the fact that you lied about it, the fact that you, you deceived, the fact that you were trying to get glory and that you took what you had devoted to God, that you had uh, uh, um, you given over to, you had said it was God's and then you took it back. That was the sin that was judged so severely here. And so over time, uh, the only, I told you there's only other one place in scripture where this verse is used in the New Testament and that is in Titus and it's translated pilfering. And so there's this idea that this was not just, oh, they, they happened to get a better deal than they thought, that this was, uh, there was a misunderstanding. This was a calculated plan to defraud. This was a calculated plan for them to get both money and uh, the prestige of sacrifice. And so this is what was going on here. And so they wanted the benefits of being part of a church family without the sacrifice required for it. And again, yeah, I'm not saying that people have to give everything. That's not the point because that wasn't Peter's point. The point is, is that they said that they were going to devote this to God, but yet they kept it back. Do we do that? I'm not talking just money. I'm talking about our lives. As Christians, we've said we're devoted to God. We said we're going to live our lives and we sing songs about it. But do we keep it back? Do we, do we keep it for ourselves and we want the autonomy? We want the benefits of being part of this, this covenant community and the benefits of being that and the benefits of, of having the encouragement and encouraging songs and all that stuff and having people look out for us and everything like that. But are we not willing to have the sacrifice to do the same for others? And to give, and to give sacrificially. I think these are questions we need to wrestle with, that we need to wrestle with here. Um, they wanted personal autonomy uh, uh, from God's authority. Uh, and so this was the way that, that, that they were lying to God. And we lie to God too. When we present ourselves as something we're not. When our words and our actions don't match up, we're lying to God. Let me tell you a story about a man named Matthew Richardson. Forgive the poor quality picture. It was the only one I could find on the internet of it. His story fascinated me. There's a man, uh, 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 he's a professor of uh, economics in New York, New York University, I believe it is. And uh, he was invited to China, to Beijing, China, to do uh, a lecture on economics, right? Um, and so the 
problem was that guy in the picture is not the professor from New York. In fact, that guy was an undergraduate student in England, but happened to have the same name. And he got the invite to go, they emailed the wrong person, and he accepted the invitation. He checked out a A-level, you know, freshman-level book in economics. He said, the story goes, it's in the BBC, you can look it up. The story goes is that he, uh, uh, the book wasn't even complete, pages were torn out. Uh, he read as much as he could on the plane. And he got there, and he thought that he was going to be teaching high school students. Uh, this was the, he thought, this is a way to see the world, you know. Sure, I'll go do this. Come to find out, it was businessmen from all over China that flew in for this, this lecture. And he's quoted in the article by saying, when I realized what happened, I realized the only way out of this was to plow deeper into it. <laughs> I kind of wonder that thought process. But uh, so he studied and studied. He gave nine hours of lecture on economics, basically from this textbook. He said that towards the end, people were starting to get, he thought they were starting to get a little suspicious, particularly his translator. But what really did it in is he ran out of material because he didn't have the end of the book. And so during a coffee break, he bolted and left. Um, this is the story of a guy who presented himself as someone who he was not. Had the same name. It was an easy mistake, obviously. But he took advantage of that. I wonder how many times we do that. You know, we, we, we have the name of Christian and, and we're part of a church. And I wonder how many people there are that way that, and maybe they're not even truly Christians, but they, they, they want the prestige that goes along with being a professor of economics like this guy did or wanted to see the world. It seemed like a good way to do it. Side note in the article, he says, I wanted to see the world, but all I saw from, of China was from the plane window. <laughs> um, I just wonder how many times we present ourselves as someone that we're really not. See, that's what Ananias and Sapphira were doing. And that's why God judged them so, so, uh, so severely. But there's, there's one other point about their, uh, this valley of sin, and then we'll bring it to a close. Is, you see, this was sinful influence here. I cannot teach on this text and not point out what um, Peter says in verse 3. Why has Satan filled your heart? Interesting to note that the first time Satan appears in the book of Acts is inside the church. You see, we're always worried about all those bad, you know, uh, influences from outside. And look, yes, there are threats to Judeo-Christian worldview. There are threats to that. And I'm not saying we shouldn't stand against that. Don't misunderstand my point. But often we're so concerned about the outside world that we're not concerned about Satan's activity right in our midst. You see, this is what he says. Why has he filled your heart? You see, instead of promoting Christ and having the bold witness like Barnabas and these other guys do, they were promoting themselves and they were listening to Satan. And don't miss that parallel between what we've been talking about, being filled with the Spirit versus being filled with Satan here. You know, at the beginning of Jesus' mission, Satan, he attempted to, to lure Jesus away. I don't know if you remember this, and the temptations in the, in, the, in the wilderness. And how did he do that? By offering him all the kingdoms of the world. Do you remember that? He says, I will give you all the kingdoms of the world. 
And the only, what he was trying to say there is, I will remove my influence from that. But he's, he's offering something that really wasn't his to give, but he did anyway. He offered him all the kingdoms of the world. In the last days of Jesus' earthly career, Satan wormed his way into the heart of Judas Iscariot, who was one of the 12. Remember that? And he prompted him to betray Jesus, right? To the temple authorities for money, right? And, um, and then now here we have, at Satan's instigation, it appears that Ananias and Sapphira sell land. They fraudulently withhold some of the proceeds under his influence, Satan's influence. So Satan cleverly, he manipulates property and profit to ensnare Jesus' followers. That's his tactic, okay? Using property, using profit, using material goods to ensnare the followers of Jesus. Now, I am not saying that it's wrong to have things. I've already said that. I'm not saying it's wrong to have possessions. In fact, there's nothing wrong with that. It's what are we using them for, and are we allowing them to control us, and are we allowing them to have us to have a self-centered worldview on this? You see, this is Satan's influence is to get us to think wrong about all these type of things. I need to remind you, as I'm drawing this to a close, I need to remind you of Luke 22. He says, Simon, Simon, behold, this is Jesus talking to Peter, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. Now, I put in brackets there the word plural, because in our English understanding, the word you, we, we can't determine. Only context can determine if you is singular or plural. Many other languages have plural and singular for the word you, and so it's much easier. Greek is one of those languages. In this text here, if you read it in English, you think that Jesus is just talking about Peter. Satan has asked for you to sift you as wheat, Peter. But that's not what he's saying. He's saying Satan has asked for all of the disciples to sift him as wheat. That's the same thing he wanted to do with Job, remember? Remember back in Job, he says, well, the only reason why the Job is following you is because you've given all these things. Let me test him. Let me sift him as wheat. What does that mean to sift his wheat? Is you, you shake it in and then you, you put it up there and all the chaff flies away and then you have what's left. He says, let me do some sifting here and I will show you who your true disciples are. And he says, I've prayed for you, Peter. You think, you think if Satan is wanting to sift Job and wanting to sift the 12 disciples in the early church, do you think that he says, okay, I'm not going to try to sift the church of Verona, Wisconsin, yes? Of course he is. So my point is just to bring up a warning. That's what this text does. It's hard. It's hard to understand why this judgment is so severe in so many ways. But it came at a crucial time in the church history, in the beginning of it. And I think it highlights the fact that sin is terrible. You see, it's easy for, me, for us to relish the forgiveness and mercy and grace of God. It's easy for us to, to, to think about I'm loved and I'm accepted and that's all true and that's all wonderful. But we can't forget how terrible sin is. We can't forget what an affront this is to God. Something that we think, oh, it's not that big of a deal. It's a huge deal. It causes more pain and difficulty than we, we could possibly understand. And that's part of the point here. Luke is too careful of a theologian and a historian to repeat things unnecessarily, like I said earlier. He says great fear fell upon it after Ananias died and after Sapphira died. He said great fear fell upon them. I think that we need to get back to a little bit of that, where we fear God, not... not 
I thought, oh, he's always going to, you know, looking out to judge me or things. That's what I'm saying. But just understand what sin does to the relationship. Yes, we're forgiven in Christ. I will always preach that wonderful good news. But it doesn't take away from the fact that sin is a terrible, terrible affront to God and should cause us to weep and grieve. This is one of the reasons why this story is here. So, do we fear God? Do we uh, understand the dangers of possessions? The rich young ruler, he wanted to inherit eternal life, and Jesus says, well, give it, give it what you have. And, and it wasn't because that was going to earn his way. Jesus just knew his heart, and he went away sorrowful because he had many possessions. Are we generous with no strings attached? You see, the church is full of mountaintops and valley moments. And you're going to have these moments of grace where everything's going great and you're experiencing wonderful joy in the church. And there's going to be times where there's going to be, you're going to see the ugliness. You're going to see the effects of sin. And we just need to follow Christ and keep our eyes on Christ and, uh, and, and watch him uh, grow his church. It is certain, we are certain that the church is worth it. And see, that's what, that's again what he's, Luke's telling Theophilus. We got warts, but it's worth it. So let me give you some homework to think through, and then we'll pray and sing one more song. So I want you to consider these questions. Just meditate on this today, this week, or something like this. How could Satan be trying to sift us as wheat? So, so is there a way that you see that maybe Satan is, 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 in, is pressing on you and I'm not trying to say every bad thing happens is because Satan is, is the one directly responsible. Um, he's not omnipresent. He's not omniscient. He's not omnipotent. Only God is. But yet he is very powerful uh, and very formidable foe. And so he does have this goal to accuse us. He does, does have this goal to trip us up. How could he be doing that in your life? What, what, what distractions are, are keeping you from your eyes on Christ? What, what, what things are in your life right now that, that may, may not be necessarily wrong, but they have too much of a grip on your soul? Um, it could be anything. Just think about that. How could Satan be trying to sift us as we... Think, well, where have I become too comfortable with sin? Where are those things where you just kind of know, yeah, I know I probably shouldn't be doing this, but uh, be really careful there. You see, one of the reasons this is here, he says, you, you, can't, you can't get away with it, okay? Sin has terrible effects. And just, just don't, don't be too comfortable with sin. So is there something that you just know where the Spirit of God just kind of says, you know, you probably shouldn't be doing that. I probably should be watching that, listening to that, doing this, saying those things, you know, posting this, whatever it is. Don't, don't push that down. Don't push that conscience down. That's, that's God working in your heart, Okay? Um, where have I become too comfortable sin? Ask that. Then finally, but how generous am I? And then ask the question, by what standard am I measuring my generosity? Okay? So these are some things I think from the text that could help us as we seek to grow together individually and then collectively as a church family, as we experience the mountaintops and the valleys. You know, it's, it's a back and forth thing. There's ups and downs in the Christian life and being part of a church, but it's worth it because we see God's work on display. Let me pray. Father, thank you for the time that we could spend together today. Thank you for this text that's been helpful to us. I pray that it's been helpful to us, and I pray that we would honor you uh, with our generosity. I pray that we would learn from Ananias and Sapphira, learn from Barnabas, 
And Father, I pray that we would see that you, you are holy and you deserve for us to uh, repent of sin right away. That's, that's one of the things, the themes that we see in this book of Acts so far is that, that we are to, to ask you to forgive us of our sins instead of just you know, trying to live in both worlds. We can't do that. You're not honored in that way. Hypocrisy is, is a, an affront to you. And so I pray that you would convict us. I pray that then we confess our sins. And then I pray that we would enjoy and be grateful for the forgiveness you offer and that we learn and we grow and that we would live in the boldness, uh, live in grace and have a bold witness in this uh, community uh, for you. In Christ's name we do pray, amen.